You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In Season 7, members discuss special education with Venus Reeve. Welcome back to OEA Grow Season 7. I'm your host, Venus Reeve, and this season we are exploring special education. And for today, we have two guests, Dr. Karen Apgar and Justin Potts from the Student Services Department of Eugene Forge School District. Thank you for being here today. And before we dive into our topic on 504s and IEPs and the eligibility, eligibility process, could you tell us more about yourself and your role as a special educator? Justin, would you like to go first? Sure, Venus. Thanks so much for having us here today. Looking forward to our chat. Um, Yeah, I mean, I started as a um, learning specialist actually working in juvenile justice back in 1994. So I'm approaching my 30 years or so in this business. Nice. And thank you. Um, Survived most of it, but uh, gave me a lot of gray hairs over the years. Uh, and then I became a, a, I've worked for Portland Public and, um, and then actually was the first school psych hired in Canby School District um, as your, your uh, last podcast guest, uh, Sandra Walk, ah. who, uh, who was in Canby. Um, they they uh, now have six, so, oh, wow. uh, but I was there covering all, all of their elementaries at the time. And then in 2007, I came down to uh, Eugene. And I have been here since then, um, and I wear a, a variety of hats uh, in addition to being a school psychologist. But um, mainly, I've worked every level, but uh, uh, from pre-K all the way to post-high school. But um, right now, I am primarily at elementary and middle. Thank you. Karen? Okay. Um, I am Karen Apgar, and um, I have been a school psychologist since 1994. Not that I like to compete with Justin, but it's kind of a thing we do. Um, And um, more recently, I've been serving as a student services administrator who oversees psychological services and special education legal compliance. Um, I also sit on the board of directors of the National Association of School Psychologists. So I do have a perspective outside of just Oregon. Perfect. So um, I'll just throw it out to either of you and jump right in. So what is a 504? Well, technically, it's a section of a law that was passed in 1973 called the Rehabilitation Act. And um, it is a section that provides some guidance, though, to be fair, not a lot of guidance, Um, around preventing individuals with disabilities from being excluded from any activities or denied any benefits, and education is considered a benefit, um, or subjected to any kind of discrimination under uh, for any program that receives federal funding, which public schools most certainly do. Excellent. Did you want to add anything, Justin? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's important to remember that um, that there's a lot of history behind 504, 
the Americans with Disabilities Act um, that uh, predates the actual laws. Um, the The entire history is really uh, founded in the civil rights movement and non-discrimination practices. So there's a lot of history that goes into 504 that uh, often isn't part of our discussion on a day-to-day basis, but is, you know, very important um, to itself. Oh, that's such a powerful reminder. Um, thank you. What, so looking at a 504 and looking at an IEP, they are not the same thing. What's the difference? Well, I would say there are several differences. Um, Some of them, like Justin said, are historical. The origin of the statutes, uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act is a civil rights law, and it is administered or overseen by the Office of Civil Rights, whereas IEPs are under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, um, which is an educational law and is overseen by the Department of Education. So they come from different angles. One is purely educational. 504 goes beyond educational to other federally funded programs and locations. Um, And the purpose of those rules are a little bit different too. 504 is about removing barriers so that students with disabilities could access um, benefits. Like I said, education is a benefit. So accessing their education um, at a level similar to their non-disabled peers. Whereas IDEA, and therefore the IEP that follows from that, um, is ensuring that students with disabilities who need them actually receive specialized services and related services so that they can make progress in light of their disabling condition. So a 504 plan tends to be, there may be a lot of things on it, but the ones we see most often uh, focus on accommodations for helping the student be able to participate and access and respond in a regular education classroom as well as their peers. Um, Whereas an IEP really involves specially designed instruction that that individual student needs in order to make progress in their education. Um, Justin, what else would you like to share? Maybe the definition of disability under each of those sections. <laughs> yeah, I, thank you. Yeah, um, thanks for leaving me a little room in ah. in that uh, in that definition. Um, <laughs> so both use the term disability, but five hundred four specifically uses um, the term impairment uh, as having an uh, having an impairment. And I, I should caution all of your listeners that we may use terms that some might find. Um, Uh, outdated or offensive, a lot of them may still actually exist in the law. So Mm -hmm. we may use the term. I'll try to point those out uh, when we hit those. But uh, sometimes those are, uh, you know, the existing term that's used in special education, even though it may seem like it's it's an outdated vernacular. Um, So the term, for example, disability uh, originally replaced the term handicap. Um, right. That term kind of uh, again fell out of uh, fell out, fell out of common use, um, and so in the changes in the law over the years, um, those terms such as uh, impairment have continued to be used in, for example, five hundred four. It's an impairment in one or more uh, impairment uh, of the child to be able to. Um, 
successfully engage in one or more major life activities. And from the standpoint of education, that's really learning, could be attention uh, and other factors versus special education. Uh, I like to think of these as either the umbrella analogy or the uh, the Venn diagram where you have a circle and a uh, small circle inside of a big circle. The big circle is ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504. IDEA is a smaller circle uh, inside of that circle. So it is fully covered. Um, special education fully falls under the umbrella of Section 504. But it ha- but students um, who have a disability may not necessarily fall under IDEA for special education. What would make the what would make that difference? What what I'm curious for folks who aren't uh, special educators, what's the difference? Well, the first difference. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, you do. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first difference is really around um, the need for specially designed instruction. Uh, it's sort of a three-part question, and that is, one, does the child meet the qualification requirements? So there are, there are um, requirements to qualify for any particular category, and there are only 12 uh 13 federal categories, if you count multi-disability, which we don't have in the in Oregon, but um, there are specific criteria for each one of those categories, and that's just answering the question, does the child have a qualifying disability? But then there are other, two other parts to that question. One is, does the, does the disability have an adverse effect on the child's educational performance? And that's very broadly defined. It's not just academic achievement. Um, such that the child requires specially designed instruction. And so we'll commonly use terms like um, the child's ability to access the general education environment and curriculum. Um, so their ability to access the, the curriculum and be able to make progress in the regular curriculum is impacted by a particular disability. So does the child need specially designed instruction? And that is defined in the law. Uh, in order to be able to uh, access their regular education. All right. And I would emphasize, Justin was talking about categories or the 13 categories. Um, in Oregon, specifically, even more so than in the federal law, we have very specific criteria. So you could um, have uh, a difficulty with, let's say, reading. You're not the best reader. Maybe it takes you a little longer to pick it up. Maybe it takes you a little longer to do. Um, but if you don't meet the specific criteria under specific learning disability for reading in the law, then you are not going to meet the criteria to be eligible for special ed. We're not saying you might not have some sort of disability, but we are saying that it does not meet the criteria in the law and the impact is not adverse such that you need specially designed instruction. And I think that's really difficult, especially for parents, but also for teachers to understand. You know, this student has a di- they just came from um, a clinic, a medical clinic, you know, OHSU or a private practitioner who diagnosed them with autism. Give them an IEP. Well, okay, there are very specific criteria under um, Oregon regs for what it means to qualify for special education under the area of autism, a lot of students with an autism diagnosis may not need specially designed instruction. 
they may need some accommodations. They might not. I, the Justin and I both know plenty of uh, students and young adults who technically were diagnosed with autism, but did not need a 504 or an IEP. So it's not, I think people get stuck on the idea of identifying someone with a disability, and then all of a sudden, lots of things should happen for them. And we really need to be individual per student and say, yes, I thank you for bringing us this information about your disability. Now let's go through the process and find out what you actually need. And do you actually meet these criteria as they're laid out under the law? Because if you don't, then this is not something that requires special education and we're not going to do an IEP. And that's hard for people to get. Yeah. Um, I would also consider that the categories that we're talking about in special education as they're defined in federal law, were not always there. So Mm. um, the categories as, as we know them were not there from the start. Um, It really, uh, focused early on in its history around things that were very clearly identifiable by most people as as um, disabling, um, being deaf or hard of hearing, um, being blind or visually impaired, um, having uh, what we call intellectual disability now was mental retardation at the time, um, and was up until 2017, actually, um, mm-hmm. that term that way, and as a result of Rose's Law was changed. Um, autism was not added until later. Um, so the origins of them also have a different basis in either sort of very medically based eligibilities. So things that have a more clear connection to a medical diagnosis versus things that are a little more broad based and abstract. For example, emotional disturbance, as it's labeled in federal law, it's now emotional behavior disability in Oregon. Um, That is a fairly broad term. It's not a diagnosis. It may subsume diagnoses that, uh, that, you know, a child may have diagnosis, but it doesn't require one. In fact, federal law doesn't require a diagnosis of anything uh, for any eligibility category, although it doesn't prohibit states from requiring it as part of their own process. So, um, so if you kind of look at them as a little bit of a, a spectrum, the, the categories themselves range from things that are very, very rooted in a medical diagnosis and things that are more abstract, like emotional behavior disability, like specific learning disabilities. Uh, so I think one of the things that people commonly don't think about is that there is no single test, um, for, most of these, they all of these things sit along a range or a continuum of um, of impact, as Karen was was mentioning. And and likewise, five hundred four is even more expansive. So five hundred four may include anything that is even uh, considered um, an impairment of some sort. So uh, a student may not necessarily have a diagnosis or have a known disability, but is regarded as having an impairment. So um, that it it is a more expansive sort of definition of what what a disability is under 504 than it is under uh, IDEA, under special education law. And Congress did that intentionally. They will explain that to you, that they did that very intentionally. Um, Two other points I wanted to point out is um, that in order to get what we call a 504 plan, you need to have a, that, you know, we're talking about that a condition that substantially limits a life function like learning. 
Um, in order to have one of those, um, you do not need a medical diagnosis. And that is a huge myth that will not die, mm. that medical diagnosis of a disability is required. It is not. It has never been. Um, so, but you do need substantial data that shows, you know, a pattern of behavior that others would regard as disabling. So it's this difficult line between, um, over identifying anyone who shows up with saying my kid was diagnosed with anxiety, give them a plan, which is not the way to go. Um, versus the, you don't have a, you don't have an, um, diagnosis from a doctor. So I'm not going to talk to you about a plan. Both of those are wrongheaded. It's somewhere in the middle. You don't need the diagnosis, but you do need really a lot of data that shows, um, you know, as a combined uh, body of evidence that you are substantially limited because of this diagnosed or not diagnosed condition. And I will tell you uh, that we traditionally have way too many students on 504s because people have misunderstood those those parameters. Um, the other tip that I will tell you is that because 504 plans are over, or the 504 section is overseen by the Office of Civil Rights, um, individuals can be held legally liable for violating a 504 plan. Unlike an IEP, which is under IDEA, Department of Education, only school districts as a whole would be liable for not providing mm. someone their IEP services. So that's something other people don't know as well, is that simply ignoring somebody's 504 could actually make you personally liable. Wow, I did not know that. There you go. Yeah, and, 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 and there's, a, there's a funding difference, too, between these, um, that 504 is, is an unfunded mandate because it's an access question. You know, it was it, it originally was to put ramps um, into libraries, and, you know, it, it's an access question. Um, and so it's seen as a, uh, as sort of a, def, uh, as a de facto, you, you can't violate somebody's civil rights just because they have a disability. And so there is no sort of attached, um, funding for that. It's just simply an expectation out of that anti-discrimination history. IDEA on the other hand has procedural, uh, safeguards. It has, it has a complaint process, um, it is funded, albeit we could we could probably spend an entire uh, podcast episode just on the funding history oh, of okay. IDEA. You know, it's been it was promised that at uh, half of what the state the cost the states would incur, it's never been over about ten percent, and uh, mm. and so the amount of money, uh, the, the fractional cost, uh, the fractional amount of money that school districts get. Uh, versus the actual cost of educating students with disabilities um, is is a, a fraction of a fraction. So wow, I think it's sometimes, yeah, and, and sometimes we hear, oh, well, you're getting, you, you know, you want to put kids into special education because you get more money for them. Well, um, there is, yes, there is more money. That is a fact um, to serve students with disabilities. Um, but it is uh, a fraction of the amount that is actually required uh, mm -hmm. to educate those mm -hmm. students. So that, that cost is borne out, um, broadly speaking, at least in Oregon through, uh, general fund dollars. We, we, um, you know, we add the amount that's necessary above and beyond the, uh, 11% or so that, uh, that is allocated for, for students with special, uh, in special education. 
one of the things I'm hearing over and over, which isn't a surprise, but it just is, is kind of remarkable to remember that it's all very individualized. It's based on what the individual student needs, and that might be a 504, and that might be an IEP, but it's individual. There isn't a carte blanche, oh, you have this diagnosis, so you have this plan. It's, it's not that at all. It's what do you need, diagnosis or not, what do you need the school to provide to get that access to the general education environment and curriculum? Yeah, I, I would, um, I guess the, the challenge always is that um, we need to understand that it's not an individual making that decision, that it's always a team making that decision. Um, and that you have to um, make those, no, no single person on that team has sort of unilateral authority. Uh, we work towards consensus. There are procedures for how to manage when team members don't agree. But that determination, that individual de determination is something that is borne out by the entire, um, by the entire team. So it's, it's important to have clear, open, direct conversations about the implications, um, both in the short and the long term for a, a particular student's uh, situation. And, and like you said, it's a very individualized decision-making and individualized evaluation process. In other words, you can't just throw the same evaluation at every student and, um, and, and that constitutes a comprehensive evaluation that just simply isn't, isn't uh, true. And I will add to Justin's comment about the team decision. It is a team decision, um, but I think we have to keep in mind that the decision isn't, would we like this child to get an IEP or would we like this <laughs> child to get a 504 plan? The team decision is based on the data and the information and the statutory requirements for having either of those things. So do we agree that the child meets this criteria given everything we've learned about them? Do we agree that the child, um, you know, matches this um, system for going through this eligibility or um, this 504 process? So there, there are definitely disagreements, I think, sometimes between the, oh my gosh, but he needs so much help versus mm. the, yes, but he doesn't actually have the disability per these requirements. And therefore, we need to think of something different for him. Doesn't mean we won't help. It That's means right. that this is not that avenue. So this is a lovely segue right into going through the eligibility process for an IEP. Can all you right. walk us through, and I know this is going to look different with age and grade level and all of that, but let's... let's well, and, yeah, I, th I think we can, uh, I'll let Karen start, but I would just say that we're going to, we may include things that are part of local procedure Ooh. versus things that are actually in the law versus both the state law, which may actually differ from federal law in that process. Mm. So I think what a lot of educators don't understand is they think that their local procedure is the federal law. And that is often not the case. Sometimes oh, okay. it's not specified in federal law. Sometimes state law differs from federal law. And oftentimes procedures may fall somewhere within the scope of the law, but will look uh, to the layperson as remarkably different. 
All right, so I, I will start, and I will start a little before the evaluation process with the um, requirement that maybe not all of your listeners may know, uh, a little piece of IDEA called Child Find. And it is a directive that every school district and ESD or educational agency um, is tasked with identifying and locating and evaluating any child that has a disability or is suspected to have a disability who may need special education. So if a student has a disability, because let's say they moved in from Idaho and they already have an IEP, we can surmise that this is a child with a disability and we need to do something about that. That's pretty straightforward. Um, The part about suspecting a disability can get very tricky because suspecting actually needs to be based on data and evidence. So I'm not going to suspect that a child has a disability until I have seen, for example, that they have made very little academic growth, even though the school has provided them with some long-term evidence-based targeted interventions to try to help them grow in that area of weakness. Uh, Same thing with social or emotional or behavioral. Um, I'm not going to suspect that a child has a disability Because remember, a disability means it's within the child, right? It means it's not about what's happening in their environment. It's not about what happened in their past history. It's something about them that's preventing them from learning or from progressing. So I want to see that that we've done um, long-term, fairly intensive social or emotional or behavioral interventions. And even though they were well-designed and well-implemented, the child is still not making very much progress when other children actually are with the same levels of support. So um, we need indicators that the child's not able to make reasonable progress using general education and regular supplemental instruction before we suspect that they have a disability. And then when we have that information to say, oh, well, we can't think of any other reason why they might not be performing well here, we might refer them for special education evaluation. So I think a lot of people don't realize that if a parent simply asks for an evaluation, that doesn't mean they're going to get one. That means we're going to review all the information and decide if we suspect that they have a disability. And if we don't, we can decline that request um, as long as we have good reason for it. Right. So, yeah, that that point at which a, a team is deciding that there is sufficient information to suspect a disability. I, I will say that, like, for example, the federal law really doesn't, is fairly silent on how much and of what kind information is needed. It doesn't really uh, lay any of that out. Um, so there could be any of a, a host of reasons that a team or a parent may suspect a child would qualify. The child find process is there to ensure that a team reviews the existing information and makes a determination about whether or not it is suspected. And so the way we've operationalized that, not as a, not as a function of law, but as a function of just problem-solving processes, is that you want to ensure that, for example, you have addressed potential exclusionary factors that are in the law. Uh, for example, a, a student's um, access uh, that they've received qualified instruction. Um, uh, so the, if a student has missed a significant amount of school or um, is a second, second language learner, has just come in uh, 
you know, from another country and is uh, coming in as a third grade student and does not have English proficiency, we wouldn't automatically jump to say, boy, this student has an English reading disability because that would be on its face kind of absurd. Doesn't mean the student may not have a reading disability. It's just that we would not have a reason to suspect the disability at this time. And so uh, that process of determining what the scope of the information really depends on kind of what the concern is, what the problem area is, and what disability or disabilities do we think would be represented by that concern and what has been done in order to ameliorate those concerns, at least informally, before proceeding with uh, evaluating for special education. So that's a really good segue. Oh, Venus, were you going to jump in or do you want me to keep No, going? please continue. Okay. Um, so let's say we do get to that point and we are going to refer a student. Um, so there's another misnomer. One of my favorite things is dispelling myths in special education. The only people who can make a referral are either a parent or guardian, that sort of thing, or an agency, an educational agency. So a school district, Lane ESD, or also a state agency. So if a child is um, under DHS care, uh, they, they can also request an evaluation. A doctor cannot refer a student for an evaluation. Um, a family counselor, a family friend, a grandma, unless they're <laughs> guardian for the child. Nobody else except a parent and, an agent and a state agency can refer for special education. So that's a tricky one that people misunderstand because a lot of very well-meaning Private practitioners in this state, both medical and psychological, um, do diagnose students and then make recommendations in their report that they need an IEP. And because parents have great respect for these medical professionals, they come to the school and say, the doctor said you have to do this. And now we have a potentially adversary situation, depending on what's actually going on. But let's say we have made the referral. Then, as Justin said, it is our job as a team and that team includes the parent, by the way, um, to review all of the existing information that we can find about this student, okay? And based on that, if we do suspect a disability, we're going to hypothesize about which of those 13 categories under IDEA is the one that we suspect, and we can evaluate for more than one um, if necessary. And then we craft an individualized education plan. I mean, sorry, an evaluation plan, because each of those disabilities is going to require different elements in evaluation. Each student, depending on what information they come to us with, requires different elements in an evaluation. So we will do the evaluation, and then after the evaluation takes place, an evaluation could involve a school psychologist, a speech-language pathologist, other specialists like occupational therapists, physical therapists, autism specialists. Um, but once that thorough and comprehensive evaluation is complete, we sit down and share the results with that whole team, which again, includes the parent. And we walk through those three prongs Justin was talking about. Let's go through all the eligibility criteria for this disability that we suspected. And did, did they meet the criteria or not? Okay. If they did, then are the um, adverse impacts on their progress really significant? And if we say, yes, they are, then okay, because of that, does this student need special education um, in order to continue to make progress? So that's the kind of the whole process to get an IEP, so to speak. 
Yeah, and I, I would add on the the um, planning the evaluation component. It's important to understand that Oregon is somewhat unique in its level, as as Karen said, I think earlier, is unique in its uh, prescriptiveness of both the evaluation criteria and the eligibility criteria for each of those 12 categories that we have um, in the state. And so many uh, evaluators, psychologists, speech pathologists, others will come in from out of state and just say, um, we just we just throw out a wide net and then we look at the results and then we decide which category they're under. Um, we, uh, to some degree, have to make that hypothesis up front because of how prescriptive our evaluation criteria are. So, for example, if we, um, if we did not consider autism up front, um, and then we just did the same evaluations we would do for a learning disability, we would miss out the particular criteria that is required, the particular evaluations that are required, for example, three observations um, in multiple settings across different days, uh, a developmental profile that identifies the early childhood features of autism. So those are specific requirements in state regulation. They They don't exist, though, in federal law. So our process in Oregon is a little more prescriptive, which also, you know, then requires us to think a little more deeply at the early stages about what we are evaluating for, what we suspect. doesn't mean we can't change course in the process of an evaluation, but we still have to fall within our, our legal timeline, which is 60 school days in Oregon. Um, and we have to uh, uh, make that from the from the date the parent signs the consent, the evaluation plan, to the date that the team meets to determine whether or not they are eligible. And then another 30 calendar days after that to draft um, and draft, adopt and, and implement an IEP. So I, I will say that um, one of the things that Justin and I actually have trained in, I think we're up to like 15 or 16 different states now at various conferences and workshops, um, very specifically about learning disabilities. But one of the things we say in general, because usually we're speaking to school psychologists um, in these states, is that, you know, school psychologists are trained to be scientist practitioners. So let's look at this like the scientific method. We have a question we need to answer. Does this child have, you know, why is this child struggling to um, read very well? So based on all the information we already have, what is our hypothesis about this, that they do or do not have a specific learning disability? Or is there lack of reading due to severe ADHD or whatever it is? But build the hypothesis, then determine what additional information you need to collect or find out in order to answer that question. That's your evaluation plan. Go collect that information. That's your evaluation. Now sit down and look at your results and see whether or not your hypothesis was accurate or not. So very much the scientific method, um, and that's how we problem-solve through evaluations. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.